Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What does the discovery of so many planets outside our solar system mean when it comes to extraterrestrial life? Are we looking in the right places and in the right ways? Are we making too many assumptions about what contact would be like? Hey there, and welcome to the 520th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those out there questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening, we bring you a brilliant man who is quickly becoming a good friend and a, on a uh, subject that is on the minds of many. And we had a, a fascinating conversation with him on uh, show number 503 back in November. I wasn't there due to uh, school reasons, and uh, we plan to continue that conversation this evening. And we do welcome your phone calls. The number locally is 401-766-1240 and from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 800-449-1240. And uh, sorry about the late start this evening, folks, but we're going to have to get those um, cancellations in there. Uh, weather cancellations Ben's favorite activity. Mark D'Antonio is a trained astronomer and he has spent decades capturing thousands of images of celestial phenomena using everything from small cameras and backyard telescopes to multi-million dollar telescopes at large observatories around the world. Mark is also the National Director of Photo and Video Analysis for the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. He creates digital and physical astronomical models for museums, media producers, and other clients. Mark was a speaker at the first New England UFO conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts back in October, which is where we first had the pleasure of meeting him and interviewing him for a special podcast, which will someday be posted on our website, Ben. Let's, let's get more upset. Okay. So, so Mark D'Antonio, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. You know, you, you have me laughing here. I, I, I can hear the little barb going from Paul to you, Ben, as he's trying to figure out when the podcasts are going to get up. Hey, I think it's okay. To, I think I'm happy to be here, but I really got to feel this out now with the two of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's understandable. Well, well, Ben is a perfectionist since uh, you know he's preparing for a career in audio. So um, well, he can't just like throw anything up there. Well, we it sounds record- great to me. Well, we recorded it with ten dollar mics. <laughs> Well, CBS wouldn't pay for the mic anyway. We we get we got uh, Kathy Martin up there anyway. Uh, three more to go. We're getting there. We're getting there. Hey, folks, we'll be right back. <laughs> I'm beginning to think it's time for a commercial already. <laughs> not, not for another 20 minutes. Yeah, well, we're, we're good. We're Behave good. yourself, Mark. Alrighty, so let's review some of the uh, discussion from the last show. So what is sure. an exoplanet, and how many have been discovered? Well, <laughs> when we look at our Earth, we look at uh, a fact that we have a planet around uh, a relatively normal star. Okay, So you got to wonder, are there more of us out there? Uh, planets like the Earth. Well, uh, that is the ultimate crux of the search that uh, we've been undertaking for the last several years with the Kepler Space Telescope. But the Kepler hasn't been looking just for Earths. In fact, it's been looking for any planets. And so far, there's actually several thousand candidates for what we think might be planets and what other researchers think might be planets. But of those, um, the number is, as of, as of yesterday, it's at 999. <laughs> uh, confirmed planets. Wow. I'm just waiting for that next day. King, yeah, we're hit a thousand. Well, truthfully, if you count some of the, the the ones that are sort of on the border right now, we've gone past the thousand. But there's a thousand planets found around other stars, and, and because they're around other stars, they're exoplanets. And that's basically the the definition is a, you know a planet around another star. Okay. What are the implications for life as we know it, Mark? You ask such good loaded questions, you know. 25 words or less. <laughs> well, in that case, I am not sure I can answer. I'm um, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, uh, the implications for life as we know it are, have, well, I should say, has actually gone, the implication has actually gone from not really having an idea to actually now having a little bit more of an educated opinion. Because when we look at planets around other stars, one of the things we have discovered is that we can find the really big planets very easily. You know, planets like Jupiter. You know, if you put Earth next to Jupiter, uh, it would be tiny compared to that planet. So big planets like that we can find easily. But now the technology has progressed to the point where we can actually find the smaller planets, little by little. We still can't find, you know, a, a great number of them, but we can still 
use the larger planets and some of the other data coming from the star that we see in its light to actually determine that we can actually see these smaller planets as well. And we found a lot of them in, the, in that they seem to have a mass similar to Earth in some cases, and most importantly, as far as the implication to life like us goes, they also tend to be, and some of them tend to be, in what's called the habitable zone. You've heard it called the Goldilocks zone. It's the place around the star where it's not too hot, not too cold. And that area <laughs> is where liquid water can be. And if liquid water can exist, then using our own planet and our own life's evolution on this planet as a model, we can say, hey, maybe they're going to follow the same path or maybe they already have followed the same path. And so the implication is if we can find a number of habitable world Earth-like planets, statistically the probability of life similar to us, carbon-based, uh, needs water to survive, goes up, goes up, and goes up. And right now the current estimate for Earth-like planets in a habitable zone in our galaxy alone, not the universe, but the galaxy of around three or four hundred billion stars, is 17 billion, as in billion with a B is in beta, 17 billion Earth-like habitable planets. Wow. That's meaning, now, the, now statistics, you see, <laughs> if you use statistics, what's the probability that there's another Ben Eno out there, for instance? Okay. There's a thought. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, or you, right, Paul? I mean, yeah. the truth is that uh, the probability that there's uh, other life out there starts to go way up. And my belief system, my belief is based on a scientific study of the universe, and that is that the universe is predisposed to the creation of the building blocks of life, and perhaps life itself. Hmm. That's almost uh, along the lines of what Sir Fred Hoyle thought, that life was not the exception in the universe, or at least its basics, but the rule. Yes, yeah. and, and see what's, what's great about Hoyle is that he was a visionary in that um, he would say that uh, life was the norm and not the exception. And there was no proof of that at the time. Well, now we are seeing statistical data that indicates that maybe um, there is a lot of life out there because we already know that there are more planets in the entire universe than there are stars in the entire universe. So planets outnumber stars. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. Well, his whole panspermia theory, which was, uh, in fact, well, I, I guess to put it in simple terms, hopefully not simplistic terms, when the Earth or any other planet moves through what was commonly thought of as, I suppose, cosmic gas clouds, he said at least some of them weren't really gas. They were, you know, trillions upon trillions or quintillions of microbes that would seed planets. And he pointed to various... Um, epochs in the Earth's history, such as the, the Precambrian period in, in, in the fossil record, where all of a sudden there was this explosion of, um, or a, I guess that's the post-Cambrian, but there was an explosion of, of, of new life forms. And yeah. he thought that might have been one of the explanations for that. Well, yeah, and um, if, uh, when I do talks on that topic, I, I actually use a roll of toilet paper to illustrate the history of the Earth. I saw you and, do that. That was very well, impressive. That's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, and for those who weren't there, it, it, it's a 117-foot-long roll of toilet paper. Yes, toilet paper. Um, and at the very end, at the very beginning, is the formation of the Earth, 4.6 billion years ago. And as we unroll this toilet paper and go through the whole length, you see a lot of blank sheets. And then when life starts to populate, when you see the first life forms showing up, in any significant numbers beyond the bacteria that made our oxygen atmosphere, you know, and that was almost, you know, three billion plus years ago. Well, beyond that, when you start to see the first insects, the first fishes, you know, the, the first types of things that were, you know, that, that lived in the sea, the first creatures that lived in the sea, then you do see what's called, and, and it's classically called, the explosion of life. And it's exponential, uh, you know, branches, uh, tons of branches branching off evolutionarily and lots of variation appearing almost mystically uh, in, in our history. But now you have to say, well, could that have been because of a seeding that was done? It could have been. But it also could have been that the Earth reached the point where it became 
much more suitable for these types of life forms. And, and as time went on, evolution took over, and as the atmosphere changed and reached the final constituents it has in it now, the life forms evolved to match. Some went away, some continued. So I find it interesting, you know, panspermia is an interesting uh, theory, and we cannot discount it because we know that we get amino acids from some meteorites that have struck the Earth. We found them, you know, scientists have found them. So we know that life uh, building blocks can come here from comets and meteorites, um, you know, and asteroid hits. So that is a possibility. Hmm. So with all that being said, where are we uh, really in the search for extraterrestrial life? Well, you know, here's, here's I mean, from an Earth perspective, um, we, we know we have plenty of organizations like the Mutual UFO Network, of which I'm uh, part of, and other organizations that do great work. And we have yet to look up there and say, okay, well, we saw that, you know, that UFO, that indisputable UFO in the sky, we have yet to be able to say that. Now, part of that is something that actually it, it feeds the skeptical crowd who say, well, you know, that means that they're not really there. However, that's, that's sort of ignorant, I hate to say, because with the new data on the n- sheer number of potential Earth-like worlds in the galaxy alone, now it seems like Geez, you know, on that toilet paper history I showed you, you know, we're right at the very end of that toilet paper, but what if a civilization developed one toilet paper sheet before us? <laughs> you know, that corresponds to like 10 million years ago or something. Mm. Well, you know what? They could have probed every single star in the galaxy uh, in that amount of time easily if they reached the technical level to utilize advanced physics by then. So an alien race could have come and gone. It could have seeded us with a population. We could be them. Or... We, okay, this is, you know, if you want to think about panspermia, well, you have to also take into account that it might have been intelligent panspermia. <laughs> yeah. You know, from, from another race that dropped the, off, you know, oscillopithecines here or something. But I, I don't believe that's you know, how it happened, but I do think that there are possibilities, that, uh, strong possibilities, that they have been here before and they're still here now. Um, so the search locally here on Earth requires us to catch up in science because I believe that, our science or their science is the only thing that stands between us being able to see them because we already see on our technical horizon scientific advances that will allow invisibility. Um, in fact, there's experiments going on right now with special types of cloaking fabrics that actually take on the look and feel of whatever's behind you and can literally vanish. I mean, these, these fabrics are under development now. So, Things like that, we now, and we've only been here uh, on that toilet paper scale for 0.001 millimeter thickness of a line mm-hmm. since the time of ancient Sumer. So, you know, if we can see such technical advance in that tiny, tiny existence that we've had so far, well, uh, you know, if there's another civilization that's been here for 10 centimeters worth of time, <laughs> all right, you have to think that they've found all the things we've seen and gone far beyond it. And so I do think that with uh, their advanced capability, they're going to also have advanced ways of keeping us from seeing them. And a cloaking system or, you know, a very simple approach is to simply hide in the deepest parts of our ocean. Um, So, um, but in terms of actually now there, if we're looking out into the universe and saying, what about extraterrestrial life out there? Well, here's the thing. Everywhere we seem to look, we seem to find the building blocks of life being made somewhere. Whether it's under the ice of Enceladus, which is one of Saturn's moons, uh, you know, spewing hydrocarbons out of geysers in one part of its orbit, you know, uh, or whether it's on Titan, where methane oceans and hydrocarbon lakes uh, abound, or whether it's under Jupiter's moon Europa's ice, where there's a deep ocean that's hypersaturated with oxygen, um, There's possibilities for life that we see right here, even in the most frigid and most inhospitable terrains. So if we look out in the universe, elsewhere, it's very likely that the tenaciousness that we see here in our own solar system has been propagated uh, and 
it's basically a tenet of the universe that life is tenacious, in my view. So if it happened here, I believe it certainly has happened elsewhere to the degree that we exist and far beyond. Taking a, a quick a quick step back, when you were uh, mentioning strides in technology, do you believe that there is a glass ceiling, for lack of better words? A glass ceiling. Um, <clears throat> you have to define that. I haven't heard the glass ceiling term. Well, uh, by that I mean um, that there's a certain point where we'd reach where there would just be nothing else we could do, or is there? Oh, just, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. You're talking about things like. Uh, reaching perhaps a uh, singularity of some sort right. uh, with our technology. Um, well, it's possible, but of course we can't see that far ahead now. That's um, <laughs> for instance, if, uh, if Michio Kaku is, is correct, as are a lot of other astrophysicists that, that think this way, as well as I do, that, that string theory is um, you know, a happening thing, or you know, a, a very plausible theory, then lying within string theory are some possibilities for advanced propulsion that could take us. And again, it sounds like science fiction, but if string theory is shown to be true, it's no longer science fiction, just someplace we have to get to. And that is that we could go anywhere in the universe in seconds or just hours. Now that sounds ridiculous considering the scope of the universe that we know. However, we're also constrained to thinking within limits. So if we try to live within our limits, then we'll never push the boundaries. And we're always pushing the boundaries. We do it naturally. So again, any other life forms, if we're any example, other life forms are going to be pushing the boundaries too and have. So where would they ultimately end up? Well, if they became let's say, stewards of the universe, what would that mean? It would mean that they would be able to go anywhere in the universe in a very short amount of time. They would have endless resources at their disposal. They would no longer need to worry about acquiring resources because they would all be renewable. They would be using um, multiple, maybe thousands of stellar systems, perhaps the stars themselves, or black holes for energy <clears throat> for these different worlds. They might have a way of transporting this energy that's far beyond anything we know now. And uh, But again, I'm not speaking outside the realm of science and jumping totally into science fiction here. Some of this is fictional only because we can't foresee, you know, ways to transport energy of, of that cat, of that nature anywhere yet. But down the line, those types of conduits or systems by which large amounts of energy and huge advances uh, that were made by these other civilizations will will be a point where they might actually be able to do that kind of thing. And will they reach a brick wall? Well, we can only see into that, that second horizon. There's a first horizon of a technical achievement where we might be able to get to the nearest stars in a few days or a week or two. But then the farthest stars in the universe, in a few seconds, that's another farther, more distant horizon. But we can't even see that farther, more distant horizon very clearly yet. So we don't know what brick wall lies out there, but is it possible there are actual final limits? And the answer is maybe so. It's probably likely. Um, but then you got to get into parallel universes. <laughs> and what does that oh, mean you know, for traveling between those, right? Yeah. So are there limits? Uh, you know, a long way to answer, but, you know, I have to say that there there likely are limits at different stages along the way, and we don't know how many more stages there are. Right. Alrighty. So everybody talks about uh, life as we know it, the big, the big quote. But as you know, our paranormal work is based on the multiverse theory rather than spiritualism and all that other crap. And uh, we keep running into the life as we don't know it. And um, yeah. From what you said on the last show, which I, I went over and my dad was there for, uh, you've run into this as well. So how adequate is our search for extraterrestrial life, uh, instead of just looking for just every, everything that's carbon-based? Well, uh, carbon-based and corporeal, <laughs> yeah. you, know, uh, you know, within our universe, I should say. Because um, you know, there are a number, of the, a number of theories which discuss the potential that there are multiple universes. And 
uh, I read an article not too long ago that researchers have come up with uh, a, a postulate that looks like it's true, and that is that at the time of the Big Bang, the Big Bang actually spawned multiple universes at that explosion point of the primordial superatom. Yeah. I have that article here somewhere because when I read that, I was like, huh, interesting, because that kind of really gives uh, some credence to what people have been experiencing without any knowledge of a multiverse you know, or multiple universes, right? Mm -hmm. They have been experiencing this, and now science has backfilled and said, well, it looks like we see this, and it's what people have been experiencing. So, you know, when we talk about life as we know it, we're looking for other carbon-based beings that live in this universe, which is our X, Y, and Z all moving through time, those four dimensions that we know. But if we're able to get out of those dimensions, which, again, sounds like we're going in the science fiction, but it isn't, if we can leave those dimensions, we can possibly skip over to a parallel universe. And I say skip over, and boy, that sure skips over an awful lot of science as to how that could possibly happen. And uh, you and I don't know that science, because... You know, not that many scientists really have a good handle on any of that. But in those parallel worlds, it's possible, and I use an analogy when I talk about it, that there's two sheets, say, hanging side by side uh, on a clothesline. And they're billowing in the wind. And once in a while, one of them will run into the other one. And where they touch, well, I call it an intersection, and where they, where, where they do that, those sheets, for that moment, Okay, if you imagine them penetrating into each other and becoming one for a few seconds or however long it takes, a few minutes, a week, a day, whatever, uh, on the scale of the giant cosmic wave of the sheet in the universe, they will have what would be termed perhaps a live intersection where two universes coexist in that one spot and someone there can see it and interact with it, perhaps. That was always just science fiction to me, and, and, you know, I thought it was entertaining, and I, I thought that multiple universes could exist, but we needed a lot of proof. But then I had a, a number of experiences that, that uh, really made me think, wow, maybe there's something to this, <laughs> you know. Um, so those beings over there would not show up um, on an EKG or a brain scan or any type of current physical systems we have in this universe because they're in a different place. Now, uh, we talk about paranormal, we talk about ghosts. Um, and who knows what ghosts really are? Maybe ghosts are just intersection points between the universes. And when you see a form moving through your room, you're actually seeing somebody in a parallel universe going about their business. Exactly. <clears throat> you know, and a better way to think of this is, think of a sphere as the universe, and then another sphere occupying the same space, but say just a little bit smaller. And they undulate. Their surface is always rippling. Well, those ripples have height, and they have you know negative height. They go you know like valleys and peaks. And sometimes they'll, they'll, the smaller one will push into the one just outside of it. You know? so you can see that if that's happening all over the sphere, all at the same time, that there could be billions of intersection points going on all the time. And that's more of what that really is to me. So I think that intersection points happen everywhere and that it's possible that in a multiverse concept that if you are open to seeing these things, if you're able to see these things or you have a way to you know, see these things, then um, you might actually be witnessing a parallel universe intersect. Well, there it is. And perhaps that's what shamans do all the time. Well, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on ON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Be right back with our guest, Mark D'Antonio. Stick with us. Hey, Parrotheads, that's right, all Jimmy Buffett fans, take notice. Starting Tuesday, February 4th, the Tiki Bar opens for the first time. Join me, Joe Callahan, on ON 1240 WON Socket Radio as I present an hour of Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band every Tuesday night from 6 to 7. You'll hear your favorites, plus live recordings and possibly songs you may have never heard done by Jimmy Buffett. It's an hour of Jimmy Buffett in the Tiki Bar every Tuesday night, 6 to 7, only on ON 1240 WON. O-O-N, One Socket Radio. And welcome back. But before we get back to our guest, I wanted to mention a couple of the charities Ben and I have adopted. 
Certainly, uh, usacares.org. Check that out. Do wonderful things for our veterans and their families, financially speaking. Uh, Canadian Veterans Advocacy for our brothers up north who've been with us in, uh, since the beginning of the War on Terror. Uh, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, uh, Bill Blaze from Ontario, oh, I should say Mike Blaze from Ontario, has founded that for a legislative advocacy for Canadian veterans, a great uh, charity as well, CanadianVeteransAdvocacy.org. And also, a new one we've adopted, Youth Mentoring Connection, all the way out in Los Angeles. And YMC, uh, as it's uh, abbreviated, is uh, an excellent project. It does a lot of unique work. People from all over the world have come to study the uh, methods of Tony Loray, who is going to be a guest on our show, because one of the things they do is apply ancient indigenous principles to at-risk youth with amazing results. So we're going to talk about that on a whole show coming up in a few weeks. So check that out, uh, youthmentoring.org. So let's get back to our guest and uh, Mark D'Antonio. Mark, uh, I had a question for you myself here. Uh, certainly anything's possible, as we've been discussing, especially in this multiverse scenario. Yeah. Uh, there, could be, uh, there could be life as we know it, visiting a nuts and bolts spacecraft, uh, along with life as we don't know it. I mean, whatever the case may be, are we assuming too much when we believe that the typical alien race is going to be benign? to the point that they would consider us equals in any way. And I'm thinking here of the exopolitics movement in particular. What do you think about that? That's an excellent question. In my, in my book, which uh, I hope will be coming out here in the next uh, month or month and a half. Yeah, well, just uh, go ahead and tell people about it now before we burn up the hour, as we tend to do. Oh, okay. okay. The book is called The Populated Universe, and it discusses the, uh, my conviction uh, through science that uh, the universe is predisposed to creating, as we said before, the building blocks of life and, and, and likely life. Um, so in terms of exopolitics, in, in the chapter where uh, I discuss the human race reaching the level at which it can go interstellar, um, I talk about what that first meeting will be between <laughs> another race and us, another civilization. And I said it's probably going to happen in deep space because we're going to be going someplace that we think might be interesting. Perhaps one of the planets around uh, the star uh, Gliese 667. Okay, now, uh, Gliese 667 is a star system that has three stars in it, uh, and component C is a little red dwarf star, but it has three planets in the habitable zone around that star. So <clears throat> it might be a very strong possibility that one of those planets could be somewhat Earth-like. We're still, you know, the, the research team there is actually still looking at that, but uh, if we say heading, we're heading there, and that race has been here uh, on, on my scale I talked about before with the toilet paper, you know, they've been around for, say, another million years before us, uh, then they're very likely far more advanced. They'll see us coming, and they're probably going to come out to meet us. <laughs> so I think that the first meeting will actually take place in deep space. Um, <clears throat> so uh, in terms of politics, I think that it's going to kind of be in – well, what we'd call international waters. <laughs> so, you know, and and would a race like that want our resources? I doubt it, because they're to get where to go from where they are to where we are. They have to go far past the needs of just the resources of one planet. They have to be using the resources of solar systems. All right, one solar system if it has a nice population of planets, or multiple solar systems if they don't. So. I honestly think that if we ever see in our lifetime a visit from an alien species, I don't think they're going to come as conquerors. And that's not a rose-colored glasses type of look. It's just a look based on logic. Now, there's no saying that aliens are logical. But Unless they're Vulcans. The... <laughs> that's a joke. No. Yes, fascinating, yeah. Captain. But the thing is, when you, when you consider them here, if they reach here, they have to have surmounted many, many resource issues, not the least of which is, you know, like I said, far more than a planet's worth of resources required to just get the energy to do what they have to do. They may have to have harnessed the energy of their whole star in like a Dyson sphere concept, uh, which is a construct around the star that literally takes all the energy radiating away from a star, literally builds a giant sphere around the star that encapsulates it, makes it literally go black. <laughs> you don't even see it anymore. But all that energy goes to a civilization that's utilizing that star system. So that's a possibility. Um, so I don't think that we're going to see, you know, the alien conqueror race. I do think, though, that necessarily because of their advancement, that they're not going to consider us any more important than 
the first settlers here considered native peoples. Um, you know, they we might try to get along with them at first, and at the first sign of trouble, they might exterminate them. I mean, that, that's that's kind of what happened. Again, if humans did it using the you know the the next solar system over, which for us was the continent, you know, next continent over, mm-hmm. uh, then there's a possibility that that's maybe um, the way life works in the universe. You know, if you're good to me, I'll be nice to you. If you give me what I want, I'll be nice to you. If you're not, I'm going to take it if I'm really a bad person. And I'm sure there's good aliens and bad aliens in the whole nine yards. Well, what are the, you, you, you wonder what might be shared, and assuming they would be the same... Now, because, am I right in saying that the physical... Assuming it's a, a physical being the way we understand such things, as you say, carbon-based life, mm-hmm. the uh, planet's gravitation... A planet's gravity has a lot to do with how big we are, right? Yeah. So if, yeah. Was, if you if you had a solid planet that's not a gas giant like Jupiter, so if you had a solid planet that would be larger, would it be logical to assume that, provided the laws of physics are the same, and we presume they're the same throughout our physical universe anyway, that they, they would be larger, maybe even to the point where they wouldn't even see us? <laughs> I mean, okay. These are all things you have to think of, I would think. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, and, and I actually talk about that too in, in, in um, my book, and, and because we have to also remember that uh, if a planet has a redder star, uh, the light is going to be generally dimmer throughout the many, many millennia and eons that that planet will survive. So mm-hmm. life forms would have developed, if they developed eyes, would have developed eyes that are much more sensitive to darkness, or they might be bigger. Might larger diameter eyes, for instance, as in um, cave life or something on this planet. Yeah, it, it, precisely so. Uh, and and if the planet was farther away from the star, then maybe uh, they didn't develop perhaps perhaps pigment in the skin. Um, maybe there was something different. Maybe their skin is a bland color. Who knows? Um, but uh, take that a step further. Now, if you look at the gravity situation, well, in a, on a bigger planet, a life form might develop there and it could be our size, but when they come to Earth, they're going to feel like Superman felt when he <laughs> came from Krypton in the comic books, right? In the original uh, thing, too, which is interesting, Superman wasn't meant to just fly. He was meant to take leaps because the gravity was so much lower. And so Superman was never meant to just fly horizontally with his hands outstretched and just fly <laughs> and fly and fly. That's the myth, you know, that, that came about uh, from the comic, right? But the truth is, the actual original Superman was simply a being that came here from a planet with heavier gravity, higher gravitational pull, right? Mm. So, on Earth, he could leap much higher because the gravity was so much less, and so he appeared to be a Superman. And just like on the moon, you're one-sixth of what you weigh here. Mm-hmm. So on the moon, you could be a Superman, see? So, you know, it, it was that concept. So, yes, there will be differences in the way they can... Uh, the way they might act here, the way they might be perceived here, their physical size—they could be larger, they could be smaller. It, you know, that's that's up to evolution to decide. They're the the size of human beings isn't necessarily tied to the size of the planet. Uh, it's tied to the size of a being, you know, the animal along that evolutionary pathway. We could have all been the size of voles mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and mice. All right, but we weren't. You know, we we needed a bigger brain capacity, so we got to a certain point. Now, does it mean that we m- might become giants, like you see these skeletons of giants and so forth? And uh, it's a whole other world of topics, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, could we become giants someday? Perhaps we're bigger than we were in the 17 and 1800s. So you know, uh, and anyone who's been in an old sailing ship knows that. I mean, people back then. There weren't really a lot of six foot two people out and about, you know. Uh, that's sort of something that progressed over time. Well, so there could be a lot of differences. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we brought this up in other conversations, Mark. But uh, there's a question of um, what? Okay, I'm just there was a plow in the parking lot. The whole no, no, no. It was, it was just the, it was just the plow right, going going by attacked on the by very heavy aliens. Right? Yeah, no, it concerned okay. me too. <laughs> anyway, but we're always struck, as you know, uh, by by the uh, the use of the term "advanced," and you just use it in this way. We all do it, but uh, we apply that seemingly to, in the technological sense. You know, the the advancement of the very advanced aliens being able to come here and this sort of thing. 
uh, an alien civilization could have dazzling technology, be able to get here in our opinion, uh, but the question arises, um, they might be also morally corrupt, spiritually decadent, and have values that are very much alien. Uh, they might even be bioengineered and part machine, as some have speculated. I'm thinking, thinking yeah. of, uh, you know, well, what say you? Well, uh, one of the things I, I think is that if you have a, uh, an alien race that is flying the stars, if they could go places in a few days of our time and seconds, um, then it's very possible that they would have explored the entire universe and, and evolved to a type of being whose nature might be just to be explorers or uh, technical you know, um, data collectors. Uh, you know, for all we know, the greys with those large black almond-shaped eyes are simply biological probes. Uh, that were created and left here, and that the UFOs we see are just probe units, and you know, for all we know, and the experimentation and the abduction uh, phenomena, and the reason why that you know, there's it's so impersonal is because there is no feeling, no soul, if you will, no, no, nothing other than a function. You know, it has a function it has to do or something. That that is something that could be true, that could happen. But I do believe uh, that. Technical advancement um, does breed another possibility, too, and that is that a technically advanced civilization, that is to say, what I mean by advanced is a civilization that, in order to go interstellar, needs to advance technically so that they can acquire energy, because energy is what is required to advance. You can't do it without it. So energy of some form is required we know ways to acquire energy require technical advancement. To go from a fission reactor to a fusion reactor requires technical advancement. The payoff is much cleaner energy, and it's much safer, and it can solve the world's energy problems, as an example. So an alien race paper will have done that. Now, would they be morally corrupt? <laughs> Our morality is imposed upon us by the various... Uh, religious groups and the various religions on earth and by feelings that we've had ever since we were children and brought up in a family unit. Well, if an alien race comes here and there's no concept of a family unit and they're just left to their own devices and can do whatever they want, that might seem very selfish, arrogant, and you know they might look like narcissists to us. But we might be mistaking that because we're trying to put a human characteristic onto an alien species that could be completely benign. Exactly. That's what I always say about the exopolitics movement. It's like, well, how can you apply human values to non-human things? You cannot. <laughs> you cannot. You know, because uh, that, that, type of, that type of activity simply just breeds lots of argument. Because you can't say that this particular being over there should act this way. Because here we go again. We're not imperialists. We can't go telling everybody what to do. We shouldn't be doing that on our planet, and we cannot do that and tell other people or other alien races how they should be acting. If an alien race comes here, however they act is how they act, and however they respond to us is how they respond. We shouldn't make judgments. We shouldn't try and say, well, that was rude, <laughs> you know, because that's a human quality. That's a human quality. You know, you can't go up to, you know, Zignac 5 and say, Zignac, that was a really rude thing to say, because... His response might be, what is rude? <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's exactly the kind of thing that you know, we find ourselves looking at straight in the face when it comes to figuring out how we're going to interact with an alien civilization that finally does come here, if, or if we go there. Um, now, I say, if they, when they finally come here, I can kind of believe they're actually here. Um, you know, I've seen something, uh, I was on a nuclear sub in the middle of the 1990s, and I actually saw something on the sonar that was uh, moving at uh, several hundred knots. And, you know, when I asked about it, I was told, just be quiet. I was a guest. I wasn't a sailor. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then I uh, talked to uh, someone far higher up, you know, one of the, you know, single-digit guys in command of the Navy, someone that I knew, and I asked, the question of that person and my response I got was the same. Uh, can't help you with that one, but that knowing smile. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's a presence here. They know it. We don't know what to do with it. So it's got to remain a black box. That's how they look at it. 
Yeah. I look at it as, come on, let's talk to them. Let's invite them to dinner and see that they don't actually eat. <laughs> you know, <or> yeah. <laughs> Well, there might be another level, and you're getting into an area that I wish we had more time for, but we'll do it on the next show. There's a, there might be another level of this morality thing. Effectively, morality, from certain points of view, is a result not of um, you know society and family units. It's, it's, it's really the result of the need for survival. There are mores that, that developed because they help the the community and the individual survive because the individual is nothing in ancient societies the individual you know alone means death uh, right that, that's correct you, you you're you're actually touching a point that i i mean i i didn't elaborate on it and i don't mean to cut you off but no. i'll just say that it, it, it's a, a hive mentality versus an individual mentality right and that that's a that to me would be a touchstone of any civilization alien or otherwise but uh, perhaps a topic for another day, because there is another question I wanted to get in here, and this sure. this is really something. Uh, this is something that goes deeper than uh, our conversations have gone before. I think, uh, sort of, not <laughs> just use the Star Trek paraphrase there, but uh, when I was hanging around with shamans in particularly the nineteen seventies and eighties, because you know the seventies were the decade when there were a lot of moon landings, this sort of thing, and they. Um, there was one in Quebec, in particular, and one in Australia, who you know different sides of the planet, who said essentially that you don't need machines to travel to other worlds, whether you're talking about physical worlds here or multiversal worlds. They said yeah. that's what shamans do all the time, and they can tell you about this planet or that planet. Uh, that kind of um, Turns us a little bit upside down when you say. I mean, do you think that's real? I mean, is the uh, can can we could we all do that if it is real? I mean, what you tell us? Yeah, I, I'm certainly no 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 uh, expert on any of that, except that I do understand uh, the out of body experience movement. I had uh, one time uh, I was experimenting with 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 moving energy up and down from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And I would make it go up and down like a vibration. And it felt like a little wave of electricity going up to the top of my head and all the way down to my feet. And I found at one point that when I reached a certain speed, suddenly I felt like I was, I don't know how else to say it, slippery. And I felt like I was loose. Uh, and I could actually slide right out myself in a weird way. Now, that's not drug-induced. That's not alcohol-induced. I was just doing it. You know, mm -hmm. I had done this as a kid. I did this because I would actually use it to relax as a child. I had, a, you know, I had a couple of medical issues as a child, you know, and so I, I was always stressed before I had to go to the doctor's appointment each year and, you know, see if it was time for that big operation. And so I would actually do this in the car on the way down. I hope you weren't field. driving. I wasn't driving. I was a little kid, you know. Yeah, my parents would be driving and people would be going down to Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut. Oh, yeah. And I would be, I would be, you know, going down there. And before I met with the, you know, cardiac doctors, you know, I was, I'd sit in the waiting room and I would just be sweating. I'd be scared because I didn't know what they were going to say. So I started doing this, this, this vibrational thing where I would just focus on this energy going up and down. And I used to do it so much that I could do it as I sit here today and get that feeling again. But I never let it go too far because I don't know what's on the other side of that. I hear that a now, lot. Is that the sh shamanistic um, place that uh, a shaman is willing to go to? I went there once when I was tired and I was up and lying in bed. And I felt like suddenly the sheets were made of like this, this like silk, uh, extremely frictionless silk. And I felt like I was falling out of bed. And I went, whoops, I'm falling out of bed. And I went to sit up and uh, my arms couldn't grip anything. It was almost like I was entirely frictionless everywhere on my body. And uh, when I finally, <clears throat> I finally kind of turned around, I say turn around because it wasn't me. It was sort of like whatever is in me, <laughs> you know, the, the essence. The, it was the people call it the soul, whatever they want. I don't know. But I looked back and I, I could see myself. And I thought, oh, no, I, I, maybe this is what happens when you're dying. I must be dying. And I got panicky, and I, I could feel myself in a panic. But I was just laying there peacefully, you know, except it was me looking at me. It was the weirdest thing in the world. And now, um, I was tired. 
Could it have been a dream? Sure, maybe. You know, and I don't discount that. But I do know that, you know, if that was a dream, it's something I never forgot because once I said, okay, I just got to calm down, calm down, I started to calm down, and I could feel myself, I don't know what the word is, uh, re-registering, <laughs> mm-hmm. arm with an arm, leg with a leg. I mean, that kind of, it's really weird. I can't explain it too well. But then I, I did, and I, when I woke up, you know, from that position, you know, my, the physical body opened its eyes, I got out of bed and I started stomping around on the ground because I, I really had to feel the, the ground beneath me. I grabbed the sheets. I feel they were, they were, they were rigid. I could actually, you know, you know, touch them. I wasn't slipping on them. And I didn't sleep the rest of the night. It was actually really scary. So I wasn't sure what that was. But, you know, maybe that's where shaman, you know, shamans go, you know, and, and that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, uh, under, understand that. There's a lot of odd stuff that we don't know about or may not learn about because we're not Aristotle here. I hate Aristotle for one hey, reason. You have a problem with Aristotle. I don't like him because he was like, we can learn anything through the power of logic. And sometimes not everything's logical. That's true. Well, you know what they say. Aristotle, Aristotle was a bugger for the bottle, right? <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that. I said philosophy. I was my degrees in philosophy. Oh, I know the whole thing. You know, I, I used to sing it all the time. You because know? we used to, I used to laugh at you know how philosophers used to compete with each other. You know, yeah, yeah. very true. Yeah, it's true. It's very very funny stuff. So, Mark, you were mentioning that uh, you believe that visitations have occurred, maybe even residences going on. Is there any way to know how many civilizations are visiting or in residence? I could tell you some stories about the Mona Passage down <laughs> near. Well, Port you Lincoln. know, interestingly. You know, again, it comes down to a speculative statistical analysis. Sure. I know that sounds boring as heck, but you know what? It's really cool because really what we do, you look at, for instance, uh, the different types of star systems where we suspect there might be life forms. It turns out that the majority of the potentially habitable planets are around stars that we can't even see with our eye, even the most nearby ones. They're M-type stars. They're really faint but they go for 20 million years or more, or 20 billion years or more in lifespan. So you know, there could be long-lived planets and long-lived civilizations around those stars. Um, so the potential that, uh, you know, they are out there flying the universe for a lot longer than we've even been here is enormous. At the time our star formed, 4.6 billion years ago, it's possible that there was already a million-year-old civilization applying the universe or millions of million-year-old civilizations applying the universe by that point. And so are they all going to look the same? No, probably not. You know, it depends. If we were just a little closer in the uh, habitable zone to our star, our skin might be different looking. Our eyes might be a little bit smaller. Um, our, Our visual acuity might be different. Uh, you know, we might have d- different uh, epithelial cells. You know, everything might have changed in us just for that little distance. So, I don't expect that they're all going to look the same or be the same. So, I do, though, however, think that if they've been playing the universe for, you know, as long as it's potentially possible, that there's not only just one civilization that might have found us, because I did a, an analysis that showed that a civilization just has to be here for about five million years more than us. And it could actually visit every single star in the galaxy once, if not more. So if they chose to go that route, then perhaps there's dozens or hundreds of civilizations, thousands, that could have come and gone to this planet at various points in our evolution. Maybe they didn't leave a thing. Maybe they built an entire civilization that has since you know, been subducted into the subduction zones, you know, yeah. uh, and, and gone forever. Who knows? We don't know. Um, but but that's how I feel. I think that there could be multiple civilizations. I don't limit it to just one. Yeah. Well, looking back on human folklore, and we know that human folklore and myth is really the the, the vessel of the memory of the human race, uh, regardless yes. of the baggage you may have picked up. Any student of folklore will tell you that, as you know, there is always some grain of truth, no matter how distorted it may have become, in every story. And one looks yes. back on the uh, pretty much universal cultural presence on this planet of stories of wars of the gods, stories of, mm-hmm. with us in the middle, 
sometimes, you know, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, right back down through the Judeo-Christian ideas of the wars of good and evil. Um, and the producer's telling us we have three minutes, so um, yeah. uh, maybe we'll just put the bee in the bonnet for the next show. But, but uh, could these be alien races such as, you described, who, such as you have described that do not get along with each other or who just fight over us or despite us or be, whatever? I mean, what's... Well, is there a good, deeper good point. dimension there, there, to this? That could, that, that could be true, Paul. One of the things the, that we have to think, though, is, again, we would be ascribing human characteristics to alien races. Perhaps they weren't fighting at all. Perhaps it's just a different type of negotiation we're not used to seeing. Now, um, but I, I do believe that there have been disparate, and I know this for a fact, disparate civilizations on Earth have seen different things, <clears throat> um, uh, different beings from the sky, so, uh, so to speak, like the Wanjina in Australia, the Kimberley region of Australia, mm-hmm. thousands of years ago, um, and in Italy and in India. And one thing I found that's common is uh, across all these civilizations is, is that their gods, their deities, are represented as having round halos around their heads. Um, now, what's interesting is that's similar across civilizations that never communicated with each other, civilizations that came and went before anyone even knew they were here. And yet you still see that throughout history across the world. This, and what is that? Now, is that some type of common technical artifice that was created by an alien civilization one after another? Was it a force field bioprotection screen of some kind um, that was over their heads? I'm sure it wasn't a space helmet. Okay, I, I'm mm-hmm. sure it was more like a, a protection field or something to protect from biological contamination. I hate to say it, Mark, but we're just, we're just about flat out of time. So, sure. But to be continued, and uh, thanks again for another great conversation. And oh, we'll yeah. be talking to you soon. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Man. Okay, very Thank good. Thank you. All right, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, everybody, Mark D'Antonio. Alrighty, so you can visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 550 free podcasts of all of our past shows, both on ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Also, check out our other site, www.NewEnglandGhosts.com, where there are case studies and photos along with articles by my dad. Don't forget about our Facebook page. Right, and find my books on Barnes & Noble Look, e-reader, Amazon Kindle, Amazon.com, etc., etc. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will autograph them for you, and you will be able to keep help us keep those podcasts free. Also on our sites, you'll find direct links to these charities we mentioned, and uh, especially Youth Mentoring Connection, too. Alrighty, next Monday, February 10th, right here on WOON 1240 and ONWorldwide.com, we will bring you an open line show to catch up with all those piling up emails. So get your questions to us. Right uh, now, between now and then, Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com, or just call in or send us messages via Facebook. We leave you this evening with an uplifting thought from the great science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. Those who think they know everything are a great annoyance to those of us who do. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.